Let's go ahead and begin today with a word of prayer. We're going to be in 1 Corinthians chapter 14, uh, 1 Corinthians 14, verses 6 through 12. Let's start uh, with a word of prayer. Thank you, God, for today. Thank you for your grace to us. We thank you for the gospel message, and we thank you for your grace that reminds us that you are worthy and sufficient, and we are not. As we saw even this morning at our Sunday school hour, we recognize that we are not the good people. We recognize that we are in desperate need of the imputed righteousness of Jesus Christ, that we are considered to be holy, not because of our self-effort, but because of the work that Christ has done. We pray that you might help us as we look at this text in front of us today. In Christ's name, amen. Read to you a brief quotation from a book uh, as I was preparing this last week. Um, This author says, um, A new language is emerging out of the dust of modernism. Basically the idea that science will give us all the answers that we need. And they say this, it is the language of metaphor and will, he is convinced, ride a wave of emotion. Interesting commentary on where we are today. This new language, he believes, will revolutionize our senses. It will make our emotions and feelings cognitive extensions of our mind. We will know through our feelings, talking about the modern age. Metaphors, he argues, are active forces in the world that have the power to bring something into being. I think this is an interesting commentary on our present day because we are living in an age where the single guide to truth today is our feelings, is our emotions. If it feels right, it must be right. And many people today, in an effort to find something that is real and genuine, have given themselves over to that which is emotional, that which is feelings-oriented. Nancy Piercy remarked and said this, With the rise of empiricism, however, religion was reduced to private feelings, emotional comfort, The concept of truth as a unified, coherent worldview was shattered. And what she means by this is that people have a tendency to think of science as true and religion as preference. If I want to know what is true, I'm going to consult the science textbooks. And if I want to know what is your preference, I will look at your Bible. It is really difficult, I think, to overestimate uh, the primacy given today to the emotional and to the subjective. There is hardly an institution left untouched by this new or perhaps not so new dogma. The modern charismatic movement began in 1906 with the Azusa Street Revival in L.A. And again, one can hardly think of a denomination today that has not been left untouched by the charismatic movement. Every single denomination, I think you could probably say, has a charismatic sect to it somewhere. There are charismatic Catholics, charismatic Baptists, and there are charismatic Amish and charismatic everything. Experience is king. I know people who have 
uh, spoke of their experience in a modern um, uh, seeker-sensitive church worship time where they have said, I've sung and I think that I could walk away blessed without even hearing a message today at all. Experience is king. Those of you who have been following our church podcast know that standpoint theory is a popular way of thinking today that basically says that truth comes from people's experiences. We are living in a day where people say, this is my experience, and it is automatically considered to be true, whether or not it corresponds to Scripture or not. And of course, this way of thinking hits close to home for many of us, because there are many ways, not just the ones where we can say, oh, look at those bad people out there, but there are many ways in which this thinking has come home to roost. In Bible studies, we may say, this passage means to me this. My experience interprets Scripture. We assume that our experiences and that our emotions and that our feelings give meaning to the text. Or another way in which this hits close to home is that we find ourselves in engaging in emotional reasoning. Anyone ever engage in emotional reasoning before? Those who are depressed perhaps have a tendency to reason emotionally. You feel depressed and so you think to yourself, my marriage is in shambles. Or you engage in emotional reasoning when you're anxious. You think to yourself, uh, the economy is going to crash and we are all going to starve. Or you engage in emotional reasoning when you are angry uh, and you think to yourself, that person is never going to change. Whether these things are true or not does not matter. What matters is how I feel about these particular things. One common thread amongst those who are depressed or angry or anxious is that there oftentimes is, uh, is engaging in emotional reasoning. Uh, have you ever done this? Have you ever been discouraged and you were thinking poorly and then you had a good night's rest and you woke up the next day and you said, I can't believe, <laughs> what was I thinking? <laughs> because you recognize in a moment of rationality, in a moment where you had clear thinking, that your thinking in that scenario was guided not by truth, not by reality, but by the emotional. Or perhaps consider another way uh, that this hits close to home, and perhaps maybe this hits closest to home for many of us, how many of you have ever found yourselves afraid to share the truth of Scripture with somebody because you were afraid of how it would make them feel? Anyone ever do that? I, I will raise my hand. I think this one is perhaps most relevant for us today. We are hesitant to say things that might offend our culture's sensibilities. No doubt, perhaps, if I were to meet you, maybe you wouldn't confess this corporately, but if I were to meet you one-on-one -on -one and ask you this question, some of you would confess that as you hear me preach from week to week, that maybe there was one or maybe many instances where you were sitting in your seat and you were saying, oh, no. Don't say that, John. <laughs> I hope there's no visitors today. <laughs> and none of you have ever thought that. <laughs> I, I hope, uh, and then after I say whatever it is that 
perhaps offended the sensibilities of our modern culture. You kind of sat there with that knot in the stomach, so to speak, and you're kind of suffering that secondhand embarrassment, hoping that nobody who was offended heard that particular thing. All of this is to say, quite simply, that because of the modern era's sensibilities and our fear of offending people with truth, there are many times in which we find ourselves wanting to avoid truth at all costs. And unfortunately, even for those of us who do know the truth, and even those of us who find ourselves rejoicing in the truth, oftentimes do find ourselves embarrassed by the truth. But the text that we are going to see today in 1 Corinthians chapter 14 makes this reality abundantly clear. Unless we bring the truth, there can be no benefit. The, the truth is connected to the benefit that we receive as believers. No truth no benefit. Let's read this together and see exactly what Paul is saying here. We're going to be in verse 6 through 12, and we read in 1 Corinthians 14, verse 6, Now, brothers, if I come to you speaking in tongues, how will I benefit you? There's our word. Unless I bring some revelation or knowledge or prophecy or teaching, if even lifeless instruments, such as the flute or the harp, do not give distinct notes, how will anyone know what's played? And if the bugle gives an indistinct sound, who will get ready for battle? So with yourselves, if with your tongue you utter speech that is not intelligible, how will anyone know what is said? For you're going to be speaking into the air. There are doubtless many different languages in the world, and none is without meaning. But if I do not know the meaning of the language, I will be a foreigner to the speaker, and the speaker a foreigner to me. So with yourselves since you're eager for manifestations of the Spirit, strive to excel in building up the church. And I want to look at this through really four different sections here. We're going to see the principle that's given in verse 6, 7 through 8, uh, an illustration given. Verses 9 through 11 is an explanation, and then he gives an application in verse 12. Starting off here with the principle in verse 6, he says this, Now, brothers, if I come to you speaking in tongues, how will I benefit you unless? How will I benefit you unless? How will I benefit you unless I bring revelation, knowledge, prophecy, or teaching? Benefit is delivered via knowledge, via revelation, via prophecy, via teaching. We might say it this way, benefit requires knowledge. Or we could also say it this way, knowledge is the prerequisite for benefit. Now notice some things that he does not say. He does not say, how will I benefit you unless I stir up your emotions? He does not say, how will I benefit you unless we turn on the fog machine? He does not say, how will I benefit you unless I avoid offending you? He does not say, how will I benefit you unless I love you? His point is clear, it is concise, and it is reasonable. 
His point is affirmed elsewhere in Scripture where we are called as Christians to renew our minds. And of course, we see this in Romans chapter 12 in verse 2. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good, acceptable, and perfect. Now, if you look at these two passages side by side for just a brief moment, we recognize the, that they are saying the same exact thing. In 1 Corinthians 14, we read that benefit requires knowledge. And in Romans 12, we read that transformation, or we might say sanctification, spiritual growth, requires what? Mind renewal. The mind has to be renewed with Scripture. Do you see the connection here? The connection is that Christianity is not a mindless religion. Christianity engages the mind. In the immediate context, what Paul is saying to the Corinthian Christians is that speaking in tongues bypasses the mind, no knowledge is transferred, and no benefit is received. You speak in tongues to someone who does not know what, that, what you are saying. What value is there? What benefit? Is there? There is none. Now, I do think that probably for the most part, many of us, all of us, have a pretty good understanding of this principle in every other area of life. But oftentimes, when we come to Scripture, we kind of lose our minds, so to speak, on this particular uh, area. For example, if you want to grow a garden, you need to know certain things. Okay, you will not benefit that garden by just loving the garden more. Okay, you will not benefit the garden by singing to the plants. Okay, you you need knowledge. Okay, you probably have to read a book or go watch a YouTube video or talk to someone who knows what they're talking about. You know, I better water this. I better plant it at this time. So on and so forth. We are growing a very small, tiny little vineyard in our backyard right now, and um, there's a lot more than I thought to understanding how to do this. And you have to know um, the right time of year to plant it. You know, you need to know how to prune it correctly so that the vine grows in the way that it needs to grow. You need to know what shoots can be taken off, what shoots have to remain. You have to know how much water to put on, and so on and so forth, and all of these kinds of things. If you want to be an electrician, then you need to know certain things about that, okay? You will not wire a house by loving the house or the wires or whatever. You need to know, this is how I have to do this. If you want to be a baker, then you need to know how to bake. If you want to be an auto mechanic, you need to know certain things about that. If you are a husband, you need to know certain things about that. If you are a wife, you need to know certain things about that. Now, there happens to be an entire book of the Bible that is dedicated to wise living. Okay? I mean, the whole Bible is dedicated to this. But we have a concise and consolidated book called the book of Proverbs, where it gives to us all sorts of statements about what it means to live wisely, how to be wise in our dealings with people, with one another, and all sorts of things like that. 
The Bible expects fathers to love their children. But the Bible goes further than that and tells you how to love your children. And one of the ways that you do that is by not provoking them to anger, according to Ephesians chapter 6. Now, having this knowledge from Ephesians 6 provides us with benefits. That's the whole point, is that you need the knowledge to have the benefit. Knowing this from Ephesians 6 provides us with benefits that produce fruit inside of our homes and inside of our families. The Bible, likewise, expects a wife to love her family. But the Bible has not left us without a roadmap to know how to accomplish that particular thing. The Bible goes further than that and tells you how to love your family. And one of the ways that you do that is by not being quarrelsome, according to Proverbs 27, and becoming like that continual dripping. Having this knowledge from Proverbs 27 provides us also with benefits that produces fruit inside of our homes and inside of our families. And so the Bible says, love your family, love your wife, love your husband, love the... Okay, here's how to do that. (laughs) Don't provoke your children to anger. That's not loving. It gives to us these kinds of things that help us to understand how to apply that command to love. This is why there is such a strong emphasis placed on Bible study and doctrine and theology. Imagine that I came up to you and asked you, do you love your wife? And you said, absolutely, of course I love my wife. And then I followed that up with, well, tell me about some of your wife's favorite uh, activities. What does your wife like to do? What, 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 what things that do you do that annoy your wife? And I, and I asked all of these questions and all of these things to help understand your wife. And you responded to every one of those with, um, I don't know, I'm not really sure. I, I just, all I need to do is just love her. I would call into question whether or not you really loved her if you didn't know anything about her. Or if you told me that you had a favorite sports team but you didn't know any of the players on the team and you didn't know any important facts about it, I think I would reasonably conclude that maybe they don't love that sports team as much as they say that they love that sports team. Or maybe you had a favorite hobby. You told me that your favorite hobby in the world, I love more than anything else, fishing. And so I said, tell me something about fishing and asked you, and you, and you ended up not knowing anything about different fishing poles. You, you, you didn't know any kind of what lures worked in these situations or that situation. You couldn't identify any fish or anything like that. I would say, maybe you don't love that hobby as much as you think you love that hobby. And finally, if you told me that you loved the Lord... And yet, anytime someone brings up scripture, doctrine, or theology, you snicker. We would rightly conclude that you don't love the Lord like you think you love the Lord. Oh, that's just, (laughs) that's for the scholars. (laughs) That's above my pay grade. Oh, that's just, that's too complicated. Make it simple. If we do not love his word, do we love the Lord? In fact, I would conclude more than that. Not only would I conclude that 
if, if you had a disparaging view of God's Word, the Bible, not only would I conclude that you don't love the Lord like you think you love the Lord, I would also conclude that you don't love other people like you think you love other people. Because what is the thing that is going to benefit other people? It's the Word of God. That's right here in the text in front of us. And if you, and if, if someone, if you are disparaging scripture, then you are disparaging the very thing that is a lifeline to your neighbor. The very way to love your neighbor is by loving scripture so that you can know how to love your neighbor. If you don't love and cherish the written word of God, how can you love God and how can you love others? And this is why it perplexes me that so many in our modern culture, even professing Christians disparage the word of God. How have we gotten here to this point to where we have such a low view of Scripture? And what Paul does here is he wants to drive this point home for us. He wants to drive home the point that it is the content of what we are talking about that is crucial to bringing benefit to to, to others. And so he provides us with an illustration He says this in verses 7 through 8. If even lifeless instruments, such as the flute or the harp, do not give distinct notes, how will anyone know what is played? And if the bugle gives an indistinct sound, who will get ready for battle? This should be fairly straightforward. There is a difference. I hope you understand that there is a difference. There is a difference between a child that picks up a flute for the very first time and plays that flute and listening to a trained musician who has been playing that instrument for years and years and years. If you don't see a difference, (laughs) there is a problem because that trained musician is communicating something that we can understand and that child is just you know, not. These instruments play distinct sounds that communicate. You know, I mean, we, could, we might say today, unless the tornado siren gives a distinct sound, we won't know to get in our, our shelters, in our basements, under the house. In the same way, what Paul is saying is, if you speak in tongues and nobody understands what you're saying... How will anyone know what is being communicated? And therefore, how will anyone be benefited? That's what the text says. How will they receive a benefit if there is no intelligibility, if there is no understanding, if there is no knowledge? The answer is, of course, that they will not be benefited. If you do not deliver truth, then the benefit can't come. How are you going to bless someone if you speak gibberish to them? And so he gives us that illustration that musical instruments convey something that has meaning. And now he provides us with, in verses 9 through 11, uh, an explanation. He gave his principle in verse 6, of course, that benefit requires knowledge. He gave an illustration 
in the music world of how we already believe that's true and know that's true. And now he unpacks it a little bit more and gives to us an explanation. He says, beginning in verse 9, he says, So with yourselves, if with your tongue you utter speech that is not intelligible, how will anyone know what's said? For you'll be speaking into the air. There are doubtless many different languages in the world, and none is without meaning. But if I do not know the meaning of the language, I will be a foreigner to the speaker, and the speaker a foreigner to me. Uh, the explanation here is so simple and so straightforward that it is almost embarrassing that Paul has to say this. But the Corinthians needed this. Okay, here's the explanation. If you speak French and the person that you're speaking to does not speak French, they don't know what you're saying. Yes, we know this. <laughs> it's so straightforward. It's, it's almost embarrassing that this has to be communicated. And yet this is what Paul is saying because they have totally missed this by a mile. They are not understanding when you are coming to the church and you are using this gift that God at that time created for a season to communicate the gospel to people who did not have it in their language, and then you take that gift and you bring it into the church where nobody speaks that language, and you speak that language here, you are doing the opposite of what, remember we said this last week, the gift of tongues was designed by God to increase understanding or to enhance understanding. And they are using the gift for the opposite reason for which God designed it. They are using it to conceal understanding. And God says, no, that is not what the purpose of this was. So what is the application for the Corinthian Christians? As he gives in verse 12. Well, it's pretty straightforward. Stop speaking in tongues. Otherwise, you are merely speaking into the air. Yes, God did design it for a specific reason and to be used in this specific context to build up someone through this gift, but don't use it this way. Otherwise, you are simply speaking into the air. And he says this pretty straightforward again in verse 12, with yourselves, since you're eager for manifestations of the Spirit, try, strive to excel in building up the church. Now, if you read verse 12 again, and you read it slowly, you can kind of pick up a little hint of Pauline sarcasm. We've actually seen a few times in 1 Corinthians that Paul can, in the right time and in the right way, kind of give a little bit of sarcasm, and he can be kind of snarky and biting in certain times. And that is exactly what is going on here. You know, you've got this church parading around this gift of tongues and, you know, talking about spirit manifestations. Do you speak in tongues? Do, do you manifest the spirit? <laughs> I manifest the spirit. <laughs> do, are, do you, do you, we, we need, who can speak in tongues today? We need a spirit manifestation. <laughs> this is kind of the, the, the thinking going on in the Church of Corinth. Probably, to be honest, not too far removed from today's distortion of this gift in the charismatic movement, the distortion of we're going to pretend to speak in tongues. Paul comes into this and says basically this. Okay. 
You want spirit manifestations? You, you like spirit manifestations? I have a great way for you to see spirit manifestations. And the next thing that he says is like the biggest letdown for these people. <laughs> he, he's kind of leading them on a little bit. You, you want spirit manifestations? You like spirit manifestations? You want the spirit to move in our midst? Okay, build up the church. <laughs> what? What? What are you talking about, Paul? In other words, you want a spirit manifestation? Okay. Attend church. Attend church fellowships. Pray. Initiate Bible studies. Confront your brother who is in sin. Admonish the idol. Sing worship songs. Encourage your brother who is discouraged. Set aside your rights for the weaker brother. Go to prayer meeting. Give generously to the poor. Bring someone a meal. Help the weak. Be patient with your neighbor. Read a Bible commentary. Listen to good preaching. Give to the church. Help at church work days. Donate your time to a church member who needs help building a fence. Here was the mistake of the Corinthian Christians. They thought that spirit manifestations only included the sensational. They, they, they thought that spirit manifestations were things that were unique and out of the ordinary. And you can speak in tongues, the spirit is really moving today. They failed to recognize the importance of the work of the spirit in the ordinary, in the normal, in the usual. They failed to recognize the importance of the plotter who is consistent and is faithful over decades. This is one of the things that I appreciate uh, about John MacArthur's ministry. Just, you listen to him and there is nothing like, <laughs> there's no flashing lights there's nothing sensational. I heard someone, uh, I think who was not a believer, said about MacArthur um, that he's not even the world's best orator. <laughs> he's not, he, but they said, but he captures the attention of people because he's a plotter. He just wakes up and does the next thing and studies the word and preaches the word and gives the word. This is what Paul is saying here. He's saying, you want a spirit manifestation? Okay. What are the normal ways that the Lord works in his church? He works through preaching. He works through prayer. He works through his word. Don't you see that those are also spirit manifestations? <laughs> Don't you see that that is a work of the Lord? Don't you see the Lord chipping away the, the, the old man in you as you are exposed constantly to the word again and again and again and again? And no, it is not always a flashy thing. In fact, most of the time, it's not a flashy thing. And so what, what, what the Lord does more often than not is... 
Not necessarily, he, he, can, he can and does do this, but it's not necessarily I walk away from a church service and think, wow, the Spirit was really moving today and I have progressed way in my sanctification. No, it's more like this. You wake up one morning after you've been going to church for a year, five years, ten years, decade after decade after decade, and you wake up and you say, God has changed me. I am not what I used to be. This was not my work. This is the work of the Lord. That, my friends, is a spirit manifestation. <laughs> that is what Paul is getting at here, is understand that the Lord works through the word, through the truth. It is not through bypassing the mind, but it is going through the mind again and again and again and again and again. And the Corinthian Christians failed to understand this. In fact, this goes further. Not only can the Spirit work through the order, the goal was not to tell, to say the Corinthians, okay, I guess the Spirit can work through the ordinary. No, no, no. The, 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 the conclusion was that the Spirit chooses to work in the ordinary. That is the normal modus operandi, the, 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 the normal MO of how the Spirit is working in his church. God could, God is all-powerful, right? Right? Could God, if he chose to, at the moment of salvation, download all of the information that we needed immediately? He could. He chooses not to do that. He chooses to use weak, ordinary nobodies to convey the truth of Scripture. Why does he do this? You, you, we actually saw this in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. If you want to make a connection between this text and 1 Corinthians 1, he says this to confound and frustrate the strong and the wise of this world. <laughs> he, he, he says, not many of you were wise and noble. Now, he doesn't say not any. That means there's, it doesn't mean there's no hope for someone who's uh, high up to be saved. But he just says not many. The, the normal way of operating is to pick the weak, ordinary nobodies of the world and convey his truth through that. Now, I do want to clarify one thing before we um, get to our conclusion here. And uh, I, I want to convey this um, uh, because of my, uh, my fear that we will walk away with a misunderstanding or uh, my, my fear that we would put undue emphasis in a distorted kind of a way, and that is this. Last week, I made it clear that the importance of getting to, uh, to the mind did not minimize the importance of the heart. You remember when we talked about that? That we're saying, Paul, it, Paul is really hitting this really hard right now, and he's saying, edification requires intelligibility. Benefit requires knowledge. Change requires the renewal of the mind. 
again and again, and he's hitting hard on this, hard on this, hard on this. Um, and, I, and I made the statement that this does not mean that the heart is irrelevant, that love is irrelevant. In fact, I don't think that you can come to that conclusion after we were in chapter 13. You have to understand that both of these realities are true. And last week, um, or I'm sorry, this week, uh, as I was uh, preparing, I stumbled across a statement by R.C. Sproul that, as is usual, said it better than I can ever say it. And so I'm going to put this quote up here for you to help understand uh, what what he's driving at is the relationship between this idea of truth and of love. And he says this. He says, so... Although the priority of the heart is first in importance, the priority of the mind is first in sequence. Do you understand what he's saying here? If doctrine never warms your heart, then it never got to the destination that it was supposed to get to. If it stops in the mind... It, it is not, it's supposed to go further than the mind, okay? That is where we want our doctrine to go. We want the word to trickle its way down and to work its way down into our hearts so that we are a different kind of people. And what does the word do? The word actually softens our hearts. In fact, someone has said one time that hard teaching softens the heart and soft teaching hardens the heart. This, this is why we, are, we, we give no apologies for the word. As hard as it is to swallow, when it works its way down, and gets all the way down in the heart, it has a softening influence on the heart. This is what God's word does. It humbles us. I have never said and have never argued that getting theology to trickle down into my heart is a bad thing. Okay? If you hear this and think that's what I'm saying, that's not what I'm saying. I have never said and have never argued that getting theology to trickle down into my emotions and into my feelings is a bad thing. Emotions and feelings are not a bad thing. God has created us with those things. What I am saying is the exact opposite of that. And specifically, that truth and love ought not be pitted against one another. The issue is not should doctrine get into my heart. That's not the issue, because it should. The issue is, how does it get into my heart? That, that's, that's what Paul is addressing here. That, that's, that's what's at stake. How does it get there? And the answer to that question has always been through the mind. This is how God has ordained it to be. Again, he did not consult us on this. He did not give a survey and see how many people wanted to go through the mind and how many people wanted to go through an emotional high. And he took, tallied them up and we voted. He just, this is how he has chosen to do it. He has chosen not to download it into our minds. He, he's, he's chosen that our doctrine will warm our hearts through the mind. 
let me say this one more time so that this is clearly what we are saying. The issue is not should doctrine get into our hearts. The issue is how doctrine gets into our hearts, and it has always been through the mind. Okay, where do we go from here? It is obvious that the application to this passage can be found clearly in verse 12. In fact, in this whole passage that we've looked at today, there is only one imperative verb. And you remember that an imperative verb is a verb of command. Go do this. And that word in verses 6 through 12 is the word strive. The command and the application from this passage is clearly strive. What are we to strive to do? What does the text say? To build up the church. That is the task, that is the application, that is the takeaway. The application here is that you must build up the church. You must build up the members of Crossview Church. Okay, that's the task. The question is, how do you accomplish that task? Fair question? If, you, if, if, if God says your responsibility as a member of Crossview Church is to build up the church, how do you do it? Right in the passage. It is through the word. It's <laughs> verse 6. Through knowledge, through the word. Um, in fact, let's go back and just read that verse again. Now, brothers, if I come to you speaking in tongues, how will I benefit you unless I bring What? Revelation, knowledge, prophecy, or teaching. That is how it is done. It is done through the word. Clearly then, there is hope for the depressed. There is hope for the discouraged. There is hope for the anxious. There is hope for the angry. There is hope for the one who lusts. There is hope for the broken marriage. There is hope for the broken home. There is hope for the disobedient child. There is hope for the lazy husband. There is hope for the contentious wife. In the word. That's where it's at. And so in light of this, I have a few points of application today um, that expound on this. The first one is this. Rest in the sufficiency of Scripture for your sanctification, your spiritual growth, above secular and other, any, any authorities, okay? If I am going to grow, it is going to be through the authority of the Word above everything else. If it conflicts with the Word, then the Word is true. If there's a disagreement between this source of authority and Scripture, Scripture is true. Number two, devote yourself to building up your brothers and sisters here at Crossview through a commitment to sharing the word with one another. If the mechanism of change and the mechanism of benefit is the word, then you benefit one another through the word. Bible study, um, fellowships that are talking about these kinds of things. I'm not saying you can never talk about the weather, okay? I appreciate talking about the weather, okay? <laughs> appreciate talking about various things. Um, but we ought to, at some point in our conversations, come to these things. 
Third and finally, demonstrate your love for God through your love for Scripture and desire to learn sound doctrine. Remember that little part a few minutes ago where we said, if, this is your, if you say this is my favorite sports team, but you, I don't think you really love, okay? You really love the Lord. Then you will love his word, and that will be precious to your heart, precious to your soul. Uh, we ought to read a lot of books. Um, I can't remember. I think it was uh, maybe Spurgeon who said something to the effect of, and I'm paraphrasing here, uh, read many books but live in the Bible. Um, and I think that ought to be the case for us. Yes, read many books, but live in Scripture. Let that be the thing that changes us. Let it be our delight. Let it be our joy. Thank you, God, for today and this time that we could be together and hear your word and to sing songs of worship to you. Grow us, we pray, in Christ's name. Amen.